Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, our reading actually will back up to the last verses of chapter 9. I'll explain why here in a minute. John chapter 10, as you're turning, I would just ask as kind of a point of personal privilege, if if you would please pray for our family Um, this weekend. My oldest son, Sam, uh, is getting married down in Hasburg, so a great joy. And then the following week on Wednesday the 22nd, Sarah and I will be heading to MD Anderson for uh, where she'll be having a laparoscopic procedure to see exactly what's going on inside towards a surgery uh, a couple weeks after. So we just would ask you all to continue to pray for us, pray for her uh, as we walk through these next steps. And indeed, as Jesus continues to shepherd us along the way, uh, that's what we'll find here in this passage is uh, Jesus's declaration that he is the good shepherd. Uh, We actually have two of the so-called I am statements here in John. We've already seen I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. Here Jesus will say I am the door, uh, but perhaps more familiarly to us I am the good shepherd. What does that have to do with us? Uh, why, Why is that such a significant thing for Jesus to say and in fact repeat Uh, in this portion of John's gospel. Uh, Well, in order to see these things, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and give us sight. So let's ask him for his help. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, Father, Son, Spirit, we do pray that you would pour out your Spirit. Father and Son, send the Spirit. And Spirit, we pray that you would come and that you would open our eyes of faith this morning so that we might see glorious riches in, in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're backing up to John chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep 
sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice for there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So several years ago, in, in 2015, there was an unexpected New York Times bestseller. Unexpected because when you actually looked at the title and, and perused the book, it didn't seem to strike a chord with the publisher that this would, in fact, sell over 100,000 copies and make the New York Times bestsellers list. But it did. It was a book by a man named James Redbank from England. It was called The Shepherd's Life. And in it, he describes his life and the life of the generations before him. He was a firstborn shepherd, the son of a firstborn shepherd, who himself was the son of a firstborn shepherd, multiple generations working the same uh, sheep farm in Kent in England. Uh, I picked up the book because, after all, my title is a pastor, or another way of saying is a shepherd. And so, always trying to figure out what in the world that meant, I thought, well, let's look at what a shepherd does, actually shepherd, sh shepherding real, actual sheep. And what you discover when you read Red Bank's New York Times bestseller is that, wow, shepherding is really hard. Uh, the, the effort that goes into making sure that one generation is producing the next generation of sheep, uh, the vagaries of the weather, uh, the, the connection to the land, the, the challenges that are brought by each season as they come, the dead of winter and the fear of, of losing the, the sheep as they try to go out and find something to eat, um, the springtime and the lambing, uh, the summertime and the, the great joy of the, having them out in the pasture land and in the fields and then in the autumn as they look toward the winter. Um, the reliance that the, each part of the, the shepherding family relies upon each other and, and upon their neighbors. All of this was, was profoundly fascinating. Uh, books like that are, are fascinating, at least to me, because quite honestly, we use this language of shepherding and sheep here in the church. We do so because the Bible does. Um, the Bible is written in an agricultural culture where these things were quite familiar but for most of us there are a few exceptions in the room but for most of us we don't live that way we don't live an agricultural life most of us have never tended sheep the closest we've gotten has been at the memphis zoo in the petting area and we might pet a sheep or even maybe a baby lamb and so when jesus says to us 
I am the good shepherd, what does he mean? Why, why is that important? Why is that gospel? Why, why is that good news for you? What is he trying to tell us about himself? What is he trying to tell us about us? How does this, how does this impact our understanding of this most familiar passage in John's gospel? Well, one of the things we need to notice, and I tried to indicate this in the way we've divided these texts up, is really this is a continuation of the previous scene. Uh, we saw last week in the beginning parts of John chapter 9 that Jesus heals this man who was born blind, brings him from darkness into light because, as he says, I am the light of the world. But, but when the man worships him in verses 37 and especially verse 38 when he says lord i believe and he worshiped him that wasn't the end of the story no the story goes on and continues on all the way to the end portion of what we've read together today jesus tells those who are present that for judgment i have come into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see might become blind the Pharisees and the Jews that are there recognize that Jesus isn't simply talking about this, this physical giving of sight that's just happened to this man born blind. They, they rightly apply it to themselves, asking the question, are we blind too? That is, are we spiritually blind? What does Jesus say? Well, in verse 41, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You see, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, had, had thought that they could see. They thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they knew what he was about. We've heard that over and again in these, in these chapters, chapters 5 through 8 in John's Gospel, as, as the opposition and the questioning and the dialogue gets in, increasingly intense. Over again, we, we've heard the question, well, where is he from? Well, we know where he's from. We don't know where he's from. Oh, we, we know he's from Nazareth. Well, we're not really certain where he's from. You see, the, the Pharisees thought they could see. They, they thought they knew who Jesus was. They thought they knew he, what he was about. But, but because they thought they could see, they were actually blind. It's those who know that they cannot see that are actually in the position for Jesus to do something for them, to open their eyes, to bring them from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, to see him, but, but not just see him, believe in him, worship him, love him. You see, when Jesus raises the question about whether they could see or not, whether they were blind or not, that wasn't just a word for those first century Jews. That, that's a word for you and me. If we think we can see and that we've got Jesus figured out and, and we've got him in a box and in a corner and we know what to do with him, we actually might be in the dangerous position of being blind. But if we recognize our heart's proneness to blindness and, and and recognize that we need someone outside of ourselves to lead us from darkness to light, to see who Jesus really is. We, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. Then, then we might be able to see who Jesus truly is and who he is for us. In order, though, to, 
to see Jesus with fresh eyes, we, we have to ask three questions of what we've read together. And, and the main question is the question that John has been trying to get us to ask all along the way in this gospel. Who is Jesus? In the first part of what we've read together, Jesus tells the Pharisees, he tells us, I am the door. I am the, the gate for the sheep. I, in other words, if you want to come into the fold, if you want to come in among the people of God, among the sheep that God's shepherding through Jesus, you can only come through him. We're going to hear that more clearly in John chapter 14. I am the way, the truth, and life, Jesus says. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the doorway, the, the entryway into the presence of God. But then starting with verse 11, Jesus changes images because he recognizes, as John says, that, that, that the Pharisees weren't understanding the imagery of this gate or this door. And so Jesus says in, in verse 11, what? I am the good shepherd. And in fact, he repeats himself in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. He's, he's revealing his true identity here, and he's, he's doing so in a way that sets himself in opposition to the Pharisees. Um, he describes the Pharisees how? Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. But the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see the contrast Jesus is, is setting forward here? He's described these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, how? As, as hired hands. Those who abandon the sheep when the wolf comes. He, he suggests that under their leadership, God's people were being scattered. They were being put in places of danger, in places of ruin. And the reason why they run, the reason why the flock is scattered, is that the, the Pharisees care nothing for the sheep. How do we know? How do we know that's a fair description? Well, because of what happened in the previous chapter. In John 9, remember the, the bulk of John 9 from verse 9 to verse 34 is an ever-increasingly hostile interrogation of the man who's been healed, the man who was blind but now could see. Verse, starting in verse 18 of the previous chapter, the, the Jewish leaders of the, of the local synagogue establish a formal disciplinary process. They bring in the parents in order to testify concerning who this was and what had happened. Then they bring in the man himself and, and they engage him in, in dialogue that, that borders on argumentation. And finally, um, they, they put him outside the synagogue. They cut him off socially, economically, politically. They, they cut him off by excommunicating him. Why? Why did they do that? Because they cared nothing for him. They didn't pay attention to the fact that this man who had been born blind, who was in fact a beggar, was outside of polite society, had been healed, gloriously restored. They cared nothing about that. They only cared that he identified with Jesus, and that was a bridge too far. He had to be put out. He had to be cut off. They cared nothing for him. Meanwhile, what did Jesus do, you remember? He sought the man out. He found him. And having found him, he asked the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus cared for this man and showed that, that unlike the Pharisees who were hired hands, who scattered the sheep, Jesus was a good shepherd 
The one who pursued the lost and the broken. The one who pursued the, the blind and the beggar. The one who restored them and gained worshipers from them. Jesus cares for the sheep. That's his identity as the good shepherd. But in order to really understand what's going on here, you have to recognize there's some history here. Not just history between Jesus and the Pharisees, but, but, but Bible history. You see, lying behind this passage here in John chapter 10 um, is language from Ezekiel 34. If you were to read Ezekiel 34 this afternoon uh, during the Lord's Day, what you'll discover is that Ezekiel 34 is, is the exact parallel to John 10. In the first part of Ezekiel 34, the first 10 verses, God arraigns the prophets and priests of Israel as false shepherds, as those who care nothing for the flock, who failed to strengthen the weak and failed to heal the sick and failed to bring back the strays or search for the lost. And so what does God say in Ezekiel 34? This is what he says, Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I... I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Do you hear what the Old Testament prophecy was? It was concerning the, the prophets and the priests of Israel who were blind guides, false shepherds, hired hands who ran at the side of a wolf, who scattered the people. But what did God promise? What did he declare? He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to shepherd my people. I'm going to gather them again. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to feed them. How am I going to do this? Through the one who is a prince in the line of David. Through the son of David. Through the son of man. I am going to shepherd my people Israel. So when Jesus says here, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. What is he saying? Who is he? He's God himself. God himself in human form, one who is in the line of, of David the king, who has come at this moment in order to shepherd his people, to gather them, to care for them, to provide for them. Unlike the blind guides and the false leaders of Israel, Jesus himself has come to do this work. Well, what does he do? What, what does Jesus the good shepherd do? Well, two things in particular that we find in these verses. The first is that he, that he gathers, and he gathers particularly through how? 
Well, through his voice, through the use of his word. Um, You see it even in the earlier section. In verse 3, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The shepherd, excuse me, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Um, Verse 4, when he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so how does Jesus gather his sheep? How does he lead them? Well, he calls them by name. His own voice, his own word. His words are, in fact, words of life. And his people, his sheep, they follow him because they they delight in his voice and they delight in his word. But Jesus will gather his sheep, as Ezekiel promised, not just through his voice and through his word. Now, there's something unexpected in what the shepherd will do for the sheep in, in gathering them together. He will gather his sheep by by offering himself, but by laying down his life for the sheep. You see, three times in this short section, Jesus says that his work as the good shepherd is in fact to lay down his life for the sheep. Look at it. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Now friends, this is incredibly striking, especially if you've got the Old Testament woven into your head and into your heart. You see, in the Old Testament law, uh, the chief priest of God's people was was seen as the the shepherd of Israel. And the way that the shepherd of Israel would actually gather God's people under under God's care and ultimately under his care occurred particularly on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, it's all described. There would be be two sheep that would be brought. One, the priest would lay his hands upon and would confess the sins of God's people. And they would let it out in the wilderness. This is the, the scapegoat that would take the sins of God's people as far away from the people as the east is from the west. But the other sheep would be brought and it would be sacrificed. Its throat would be slit and the blood would come out. And it would be gathered together in a bowl and the priest, the chief priest, the shepherd of God's people, having sacrificed the sheep, goes into the holiest place, the holy of holies itself, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells and sits over the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the law that had been broken, and the smashed tablets of Moses are there, reminding God's people that always before the holiness of God, the law stands broken. And the only way that anyone can approach this holy God is by means of blood. 
And so the priest, the shepherd of Israel, would bring that blood that's been sacrificed, that sheep that's been sacrificed, and would bring it in and he'd pour the blood out onto the top of the ark called the mercy seat so that the blood would cover the, the sins of God's people, the breaking of God's law. And so the, the shepherd offers the sheep so that the shepherd and, and God's people might go free. But, but what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say that the shepherd is giving the lives of the sheep so that the shepherd might go free? No, that's not what he says at all. Three times he says it. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. What's going on here? Don't you see? Jesus has turned around all that the Old Testament taught God's people to expect. They were still sinners. They still had broken God's wall. They still, it still required something to be poured out upon the mercy seat in, for, in order for the holy justice of God to be satisfied. But the shepherd doesn't offer the sheep for the people. No, the shepherd offers himself for the sheep. Offers himself for the people. He lays down his own life. Yes, he, he offers it up on the cross. No man took Jesus' life when he was nailed on the cross on Calvary on Good Friday. No, Jesus offered himself willingly as the good shepherd who himself is the sheep whose blood is shed so that you might have your sins cleansed. Not by, by corruptible things like silver and gold as we've already heard, but, but Jesus' own blood is offered so that we as sheep might be gathered as part of his people and under his care. It's, it's a remarkable gift of grace. That's why we call this gospel. It's good news that the shepherd would lay down his life in this way for you. So how should we respond to that? to this gospel, to this good news that Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? John records yet again the response of those who heard him, the Jews. There were some who thought that he had a demon. It was insane. And of course, when you think about it, that is an appropriate response for Jesus to say the things that he's saying, that he's in fact God, the one who has come as God's own representative to shepherd Israel and to offer himself for the sins of the world. He's either insane or he's, he's demon-possessed or he's exactly who he says he is, exactly who he claims he is. So we shouldn't fault them for actually thinking reasonably. They've just come to the wrong answer and, and, the, and the opposite response is actually the, the proper line of evidence. Can a man who's demon-possessed Heal this blind man? You have this man whose life has been changed and transformed, not just physically with his eyes, but spiritually. This beggar now is worshiping Jesus as the Son of Man. And so you have this division in the response, but how about you? How, how do you respond? Oh, surely this morning we, we should be those who respond with faith. After all, why does God himself come in Jesus to shepherd us, to gather us, to, to lay down his life for us? Well, it's because we're the wandering ones. We are the lost, we're the blind ones. 
Isaiah said it. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And two, the psalmist has words that we sing. We cry out, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Of course, the good news of the gospel is that God himself and Jesus Christ has done just that. He's come to seek us. He's, he's not like others, other human beings in our lives, other, other prophets, other priests uh, who have abandoned us, who run when the enemy comes, or who allows the devil to somehow crush us. No, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And he does all that is necessary to win and woo our hearts again. Above all, he lays down his life for us. That's what this meal is telling us, isn't it? As we have broken bread and poured out juice, and as we take these tangible signs, we, we see here the links to which God went to rescue us, to save us from our sins, to save us from us. Shouldn't we trust him? Shouldn't, shouldn't we rest our hearts upon him? Shouldn't we receive the gift of grace in Jesus Christ yet again? Shouldn't we allow ourselves in trust and faith to be gathered as God's people once again? Of course, it's entirely possible to trust and to, to rest and to receive and to believe, but not to love. Friends, that, that's actually the, the response, I think, though, that God desires of us, is that we would love him that our affections would be stirred and drawn out so that we might, that we might love and sing and wonder at Jesus and what he's done for us. After all, Jesus himself said in verse 17, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life. Friends, if God the Father loves Jesus because Jesus laid down his life, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we love him? Surely as we remember Jesus' death until he comes as we come to this table. Surely as we remember his resurrection and ascension as we've already confessed in the Apostles' Creed, we should, we should have our hearts stirred. And if they're not being stirred, we should ask God to come and stir our hearts again. To engage our affections. So that we can say with the hymn writer, I love thee because thou first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, O oh Jesus, tis now. Shouldn't that be our prayer this morning? Shouldn't we ask God to stir our hearts so that we can leave this place saying, Oh Lord Jesus, because of what you've done, as I've seen it in your word, as the good shepherd, as I've experienced it at this table, if ever I love thee, oh Jesus, tis now, it's now. Friend, don't be satisfied this morning just going through the action of a Sunday. Here your Savior deigns to meet with you. Ask him to stir your heart this morning so that you might see him as he actually is. You might be brought from darkness to light to see that your guilt no longer remains on you because Jesus has, has taken it all upon himself. Ask God to stir your heart so that you might love him yet more. Let's ask him to do that. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we confess the weakness of our love. To be sure, there are times where it seems as though the, 
uh, there's a light shaft that breaks into our darkness and our hearts are brought out of ourselves and we're enabled to love you for a moment and yet we get caught up in all our other things and our concerns and our fears and all the rest. Lord Jesus, set all that aside. In my word and sacrament and prayer this day, stir our affections that we might love you today, right now, far more than we did yesterday. That we might love you yet more tomorrow than today because we've come to see you as you actually are. Through the power of the cross, we see you as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Grant us this, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.